0: This is Mike Munger of Duke University. Sayings and folk traditions. Is the conventional wisdom wise? Can we evaluate traditions when usually we don't understand why those traditions arose in the first place? Also, twedge. And this week's letter. Straight out of Creedmoor, this is Tidy C. I thought they talk about a system where there were no transaction costs. But it's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter. And it is costly to transact. This week's letter is from BR. Send it into the podcast email, taitc.email at gmail.com. That's tidyc.email at gmail.com. BR writes Minimizing transaction cost has been captured in many sayings. A stitch in time saves nine, look before you leap, choose the lesser of two evils, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It all seems like common sense economics. All of these things are true until they aren't. They aren't universal guides. The conditions where the assumptions no longer apply is hard to identify. Economic theory seems to overturn common sense. Is there a point, Br is asking, where we might follow simple rules like this even if we'd be better off trying to analyze the problem that the simple rules are generally supposed to answer for us. Well, this question is a good one it relates to a complicated problem one that spans decision theory and ethics that problem is rule utilitarianism importantly the right way to think about the whole comes down to the transaction cost of the parts of the decision rule utilitarianism applies to complex low information settings where you have to pick a decision rule that is rather than making a series of choices that you have to think about can you choose an overall decision rule knowing that some of the time that rule is going to lead you to an outcome that is not as good as you could have achieved if you spent a lot of time thinking about every single choice that you make from the time that you wake up in the morning until you fall exhausted into your bed because you've had to think about all those decisions. Question is, what rule performs best across many decisions? Rule utilitarians argue that following rules tend to lead to the greatest good because that rule will have better consequences overall than allowing exceptions to be made in individual instances, even if better consequences can be demonstrated in those instances. So this actually relates to a topic that we'll take up in later episodes, which is rent-seeking. But let's bracket that for now. One of the problems with not using rule utilitarianism is that you create opportunities for rent-seeking. And we'll come back later to that question at a different episode. Suppose you have a problem, a decision to make. You obtain information, you rank alternatives, you make a choice, and then you evaluate whether you made the correct choice after the fact. That's very time-consuming for many, and in fact, most decisions, if you think about it, that you make during the course of a day, we don't have time to do all that, at least not accurately. So if you think all of the decisions that you make every day, you probably think in terms of a lot of the times I just use a habit. In effect, it's like a legal precedent. In situations like this, I do this. Daniel Kahneman wrote an important book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and his summary of the book is provocative. Kahneman said, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. So at the minute that you're thinking about this decision, about what kind of breakfast cereal to have, it's just not that important. And yet you are devoting all of your mind's cognitive energies to that instead of other things that you might be thinking about instead. Most of the time, we don't actually get information, rank alternatives, and then make a choice, which we later evaluate for accuracy. Most of the time, we rely on habit or the sort of wisdom that is embodied in the little sayings, the folk sayings, the conventional wisdom in BR's question. It's like the common law, identifying what previous cases provide a precedent for this case, and then we use the decision in the previous case, stare decisis, let the precedent, let the decision stand, as a shortcut for the current case, rather than thinking about the whole thing from scratch. Now, my good friend David Schmitz The philosopher, has a parable about what he calls Dessert Town. And Dessert Town is spelled D-E-S-E-R-T. That is, it's about deserving. It's not two S's like a sweet treat at the end of a meal. It's just one S, Dessert Town. So here's David Schmitz's parable. I pulled over. The cop pulled in behind, walked to my window, peered inside, asked for my license and registration. "'You new in town?' Yes, I said, I got in five minutes ago. You know what you did wrong? Well, sorry, there was no stop sign or stoplight. The cars on the cross street were all stopped, so I just kept going. Cop shook his head. In this town, sir, we distribute according to dessert. Therefore, when motorists meet at an intersection, they stop to compare destinations and ascertain which of them is more worthy of having the right-of-way. If you attend our high school track meet tomorrow night, you'll see it's the same thing. Instead of awarding gold medals for running the fastest, we award them for giving the greatest effort. Anyway, that's why the other cars honked, because you didn't stop to compare destinations or the merit of your errand. The cop paused, stared at me silently. I'm sorry, officer, I said at last. I know you've got to be joking, but I'm afraid I don't get it. Justice isn't a joke, sir. I was going to let you off with a warning until you said that. Well, the point is that that's not the way we handle things at intersections. The way we handle things at intersections, for the most part, are silly and frankly unjust rules. Specifically, stoplights. So, I am late. You have plenty of time. But it happens that the light is red in my direction and is green in your direction. That seems completely unfair. Except in a few moments, the light will be green in my direction and red in yours. It's arbitrary but fair. The main thing is that with a stoplight, the most anyone has to wait is two minutes. If we all have to get out of our cars and argue at every intersection, the minimum we would have to wait is seven minutes. So let's suppose that we believe, I'm not sure I do, because having it come down to whoever is the better at playing victim is not necessarily the best way to decide what is just. But let's suppose at every intersection, each of us is going to get out and argue the merit of our case and how ethically important our errand is. That would take a minimum of seven minutes at every intersection. Stoplight takes a maximum of two minutes. Clearly, everyone is better off with stoplights than they are with the just system of whoever has the most ethically significant errand gets to go first so that's an example of rule utilitarianism in the sense that it's probably true sometimes that someone who actually has great ethical need of hurry has to wait at a red light when in a perfect world without transaction costs they would be able to go through. Once you recognize that having to argue about the merits of your errand at every intersection has transaction costs that dwarf the benefits from having a just system where the person with the most significant errand gets to go first, we're going to choose stoplights over getting out and arguing. Br's question in a way was about conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom means that we have come up with a set of rules which over time we may have forgotten, if we ever knew, the reason why those rules were adopted in the first place. Aristotle describes what he calls character, and character is the set of virtues and vices that have become habitual. And what Aristotle exhorts us to do is to cultivate the habit of virtue, and virtue is Doing the right thing without even thinking about it because we have arrived as a product of right reason at conclusions about the right thing to do. And we cultivate those habits to the point where we no longer have to think about it. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. On Econ Talk, Russ Roberts' podcast, one of the tropes is the Chesterton fence. A Chesterton fence is a practice, a norm, or a habit that makes no sense to you, but that you should nonetheless recognize that it likely served some purpose in the past. So the, the conceit of the example is you're in a forest, you come across a fence, and you think, well, there's no reason for this fence to be here. I'm going to take it down. Well, you don't know why the fence is there, so you should not take that fence down until at least you find out why it was there in the first place. It must have served some function. The fact that you don't understand that function doesn't mean that you get to take it down. That's often the way that we think about conventional wisdom. Now, this is a theme that Nassim Taleb often hits. We, we shouldn't try to anticipate the mean. We shouldn't try to be, do the best that we can on average. What we need is some provision against really bad outcomes, or what Taleb calls absorbent barriers. We have to not die. We have to survive. And so the fact that some of these Chesterton fences, some of these conventional wisdom sayings that I quoted at the outset in BR's letters, some of those are frustrating because it seems like we can do better. The claim is not, you can't do better than this. The claim is if you do those things, you will not hit an absorbent barrier. You will avoid the worst outcomes that end the game for you. And end the game here is not a metaphor. This is a question of survival. So giving in to the Cartesian impulse, the, the, the Descartes idea of radical skepticism that says we don't know anything unless we can explain its existence and purpose from first principles. That sort of conceit is crazy. You might say I don't understand this, but saying if I don't know it, I have to assume that it's wrong is quite a different thing. There's Chesterton fences everywhere. There are many pieces of wisdom, the equivalent of stoplights in desert town, that are focal points that are allow us to organize and coordinate the activities of many people at very low transaction cost. You shouldn't underestimate the importance of those sorts of habits. The habit of stopping at a stoplight is frustrating, but if you compare that to either chaos, where everyone's just crossing whenever they want, or we have to get out of our cars and argue about who has the most pressing and ethically significant errand, stoplights are pretty good. Famously, Alfred North Whitehead lauded the importance of accurate habits over the application of reason. What Whitehead said was, It's a profoundly erroneous truism, repeated by all copybooks and by eminent people when they're making speeches, that we should cultivate the habit of thinking of what we're doing. The precise opposite is the case. Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking about them. Operations of thought are like cavalry charges in a battle. They are strictly limited in number, they require fresh horses, and they must only be made at decisive moments. Friedrich Hayek extended Whitehead's claim. Hayek said, We make constant use of formulas, symbols, and rules whose meanings we do not understand, and through the use of which we avail ourselves of the assistance of knowledge, which individually we do not possess. We have developed these practices and institutions by building upon habits and institutions which have proved successful in their own sphere and which have in turn become the foundation of the civilization that we have built up. This was noticed, this idea of rule utilitarianism, was noticed in a simple form by Adam Smith, who advocated for doing the right thing rather than constantly trying to do a cost-benefit analysis about whether I can get away with doing the wrong thing, the evil thing, the immoral thing in this instance. What Smith said was, though the end of the rules of justice be to hinder us from hurting our neighbor, it may frequently be a crime to violate them, though we could pretend with some pretext of reason that this particular violation could do no hurt. A man often becomes a villain the moment he begins, even in his own heart, to chicane in this manner. The moment he thinks of departing from the most staunch and positive adherence to what those inviolable principles prescribe to him, he is no longer to be trusted, and no man can say what degree of guilt he may not arrive at. The thief imagines he does no evil when he steals from the rich. What he supposes that they may easily want and what possibly they may never even know has been stolen from them. The adulterer imagines he does no evil when he corrupts the wife of his friend, provided he covers his intrigue from the suspicion of the husband and does not disturb the peace of the family. When once we begin to give way to such refinements, there is no enormity so gross of which we may not be capable. Now, Smith is making a moral argument. This sounds like a kind of slippery slope. Well, if you do anything wrong, you'll end up doing everything wrong. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you have a commitment to a principle, you don't have to think about is this, in this instance, can I get away with not following it? Yes, it's true that sometimes you probably could have gotten away without following it and maybe you would have been better off in that instance. But overall, you're better off following these rules and a big reason for that is that your judgment is fallible and you're prone to self-deceit. No one is good enough to do the right thing if they stop and add up the cost and benefits. Getting caught having an affair or taking money or supplies from your office, those are absorbent barriers. You're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose your job. You can't go back from that. Good habits means sometimes you act well when you didn't really have to do the right thing. That sounds like a cost, but if you think about it, it's actually a significant benefit on its own terms. Whoa! That sound means it's time for TWEDGE. This TWEDGE is about social norms and expectations. In the 1980s, before the collapse of communism, there was a conference of economists held somewhere behind the Iron Curtain. After the final session of the first day's proceedings, participants left the hotel in search of drinks, because of course they did. These are economists, after all. One particular group had four people who had all met at a panel. It was a Hungarian, a Russian, an American, and an Australian. And they were leaving the hotel to go to a bar, and they were accosted by a local journalist who was standing on the sidewalk, who said to them, "'Excuse me, gentlemen, "'but what's your opinion of the current meat shortage "'that we're suffering?' Each replied in turn, "'Meat? <laughs> what's that? "'We don't have that in Hungary.' The Russian said, "'Opinion? What this mean? "'We don't have those in Russia.' "'Shortage? What the hell's that? "'We don't have those in America.' and then up piped the australian excuse me what does that mean so the point is that the idea of using convention is going to be conditioned on culture And so the four people have different reactions to the question based on the set of conventions that they themselves have eternalized in the process of deciding how to act. And so the question that we started out in the letter about the conventional wisdom, not all of those are going to travel very well because they're culturally and socially determined. (laughs) What's time for this week's letter? This letter comes from B. Your discussion of how lettuce is sold struck a nerve with me. Lettuce prices have gone up over the past year and paying for it by the head makes no sense. The size and weight of romaine lettuce heads vary widely. Why should I pay the same amount for a one pound as a two pound head of romaine lettuce? The two pound head will yield twice the number of servings. So I spend extra time looking for the heavier heads, which are a much better value. Many fruits and vegetables of similar cost are sold by weight, not unit. So what is it about lettuce? It also only takes a few seconds now to weigh produce. The scale is built into the cash register and it automatically converts into price. And so what used to be difficult, you had to weigh it and then multiply by the price. All of that now is done automatically. At one market I go to, green peppers are sold by the union. At one market I go to, green peppers are sold by the unit, but pasilla peppers and other peppers are sold by the pound. At another market, nearby, both are sold by the pound. If I go to the market and all they have are very small heads of romaine lettuce for $3, I'll just buy something else, rather than paying two or three times what I would pay in other weeks. There's likely to be a transaction cost for the market throwing away the small heads that no one buys because they're so expensive, because it's just waste. If lettuce was sold by weight, I could buy two smaller heads for the same price as one large head. That makes a lot more sense to me. I suspect I'm also not the only person who is upset about the combined effect of inflation and lettuce weight variability. Selling lettuce by the head seems to be an outdated practice that's no longer relevant. It seems to me it actually raises transaction costs, given today's technology. What am I missing? Well, thanks for that, BR. That's a terrific question. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll work on that puzzle, have another hilarious twedge, and more next week on Tidy C.